0: Welcome to Parlay Me Power Players. This is a podcast that explores the latest entrepreneurs, startups, founders, business leaders and even enterprises that are changing the game. We call them the disruptors. You might see them as your mentors or maybe even your colleagues but we are so excited to bring to you Each week, someone we find either fascinating, progressive, or someone that's really making changes in all kinds of industries. We are agnostic in what we cover. So we cover everything from mobility to AI to food and produce. You name it, we cover it. But most importantly, we want to showcase to you entrepreneurs that are really making a difference and making the world a better place. Hi guys, welcome to Parlay Me Power Players, and we are joined by a fantastic guest today, Wayne Siong. Now he is the partner at China Growth Capital, or better known as CGC, and they are a leading China-focused seed and early-stage venture capital firm in China. Now this being a Beijing-based venture capital firm, also has extended interest in Silicon Valley. So, CGC believes China consumer opportunities are dominating the market and see enterprise and technology as the next frontier in economic growth. As a result, they have pioneered fintech and enterprise innovations in China since 2006. And today, CGC has grown to manage over 1.2 billion US dollars in asset under management across its different funds. Additionally, the firm provides tremendous support to help its portfolio of companies to develop business models and build exceptional teams. Now, Wayne, uh, you are you became a VC in 2005, and to my knowledge, you joined CGC in 2012. And prior to that, you launched your investment career as a consultant to Piper Jaffrey's Internet Equity Research Team. Now, for those listening and want to know a little more about um, CGC, China Growth Capital It's an early stage VC managing over one billion with portfolio, and they incubate seed and backup startups with a check size typically from two to five million up to fifteen million. So, welcome Wayne. It's a pleasure to have you on Parley Meet Power Players, and you have a very elaborate career.
1: (laughs) Thank you, thank you, Jeremy. Hello, guys.
0: So, I wanted to ask you, Wayne, just to kind of kick it off, so to speak. Um, Can you tell us a little more about how you came to be a partner at CGC, Um, you know, without going too much into your background, because it is so elaborate and amazing, but kind of how you came to be in 2016 and and then you joined them?
1: Sure. Um, Yeah. So I I became a VC in 2005. My first firm when I joined, uh, it's a San Francisco-based venture capital firm with offices in Beijing and Taipei, Singapore. I also spent a couple of years at a at Bertelsmann Asian Investments, uh, that, that was between 2010 and 2012. Yeah, when I joined CDC in 2012, and CDC was uh, very much like a Y Combinator type of business for, for China, doing early stage venture, uh, even incubation, and uh, a lot of exciting, interesting stuff, super early stage. And I was the first outside partner to join them. And uh, when I joined, we recruited another partner and now there, there's uh, three of us um, having raised over 1 billion US dollars across different funds. So I think the the entire process, the entrepreneurial way of um, doing venture capital uh, make us more like a startup, right? So, uh, so I think VCs are are very like startups and uh, we raise money from LPs exactly like uh, venture startups raise money from VCs. And uh, that made me like the partner in the, in the business.
0: Got it. Got it. Yeah, absolutely. You're all doing a whole lot of hustle, but on different levels. So um, <laughs> tell me, how many startups are in your portfolio? Um, I believe it's over 200. Um, and what sectors do you overstay?
1: Yeah. So in total, we have close to 200 companies in our portfolio um, through the years. Mm-hmm. And uh, because we're only investing in three things, one being enterprise software and services, second being frontier technologies, and third being marketplaces, business models. So I oversee frontier technology group. Uh, in the group, we have roughly around five people covering both a computer te- uh, computer technology, communication, as well as as uh, what do we define as live 3.0 innovations apply, for example, applying AI to diagnosis type of things.
0: Okay. Wow. I love that live 3.0. Okay. This is the kind of, I guess, position where, you know, China is in relation to the world. And obviously, you know, there's a lot of VC um, firms that have come about in the last, you know, five to 10 years or so. Um, Forbes' recent um, 100 venture capitalist list, China snagged about 21 places on that list. Um, and most importantly, those funds made the list uh, were not focused on Silicon Valley, Valley but rather ventures in China. Um, I guess it's a twofold question. How much is your fund uh, mm. focused on China-based? And those, I know you guys do position yourselves as you extend to Silicon Valley and abroad. Um, and what is it you think that sets Chinese, China-based VC firms apart from other regions, i.e. like what makes them so successful that they snagged 21 places on that 100 uh, list?
1: Right. Uh, I, I think there there are many questions in your, in your question. <laughs> so my, my take is within our portfolio, uh, the Silicon Valley portion is probably, uh, is definitely below 10%. And, um, and also out, out of those 10%, I have to say, 80 percent being Chinese founders, startup companies in Silicon Valley, and 20 percent being international founders, uh, American teams or European teams, uh, and increasingly because we're, we're Chinese VC, so it's actually easier, it's way easier for us to uh, to, to fund a Chinese startup uh, in wherever they are. Sometimes in Japan, sometimes in. Uh, singapore sometimes in uh well we haven't done anything in europe yet but uh, uh so we're always kind of pursuing chinese founders and to compare to other guys on the market um i think um the reason we're we're investing in Silicon valley is is, is pr- primarily because of the technology and the ideas and Silicon valley is still like the center of innovations a lot of Having so much, uh, so many talents and across so many different verticals, and uh, Silicon Valley is a natural choice for next generation innovations. But um, the China story is, China is at this kind of reflection point where. China which China has become being a, has has become a market where uh, well a lot of sophisticated stuff getting done in China instead of in the U.S. initially or in in, the, in Japan in the past. And now if you look at uh, all the smartphones and look at all the PCs and uh, increasingly even EVs, right? Uh, Tesla is. The Tesla China's Chinese factory is already up and running. So, um, China has become this huge supply chain concentration uh, marketplace for a lot of really uh, next generation stuff. So, uh, the story for for China is you actually can attract people and resources and technology to come to China and leverage this huge consumer market, 1.4 billion people, and who and which is. 100% penetrated, pretty much 100%. According to stats, they said it's 80%. But for example, my mom, she she does her shopping on, on her phone, WeChat, using WeChat and JD.com. And she is, um, uh, well, she's 70, 73 years old. So uh, yeah, imagine that, right? So the penetration of mobile internet is pretty high in the country. So you actually can do a lot of things. Um, applying the technologies to the huge Chinese consumer market.
0: Fantastic. Look, Yeah, look, it's coming leaps and bounds, I dare say. And look, I, I wasn't around obviously in the scene in the 80s, but I know it was, from my understanding, primary infrastructure and property development and new hotels and tourism were really popular for investment. And today, you know, it's been a real influx of um, China-based VC funds, um, you know, predominantly a lot of them were led by foreign funds. Um what do you think's driving I guess the growing trend of VC deals only involving domestic funds? I mean obviously you mentioned obviously the growth of technology there and but do you think it's also loosening of government regulations and reforms um because I know there's been a real push obviously for like you know digital transformation so to speak um or is there been like kind of a growing distrust perhaps in foreign investors um it's again a twofold question, <laughs> um, but what what do you think?
1: Sure. Um, so uh, our biz- our industry started with uh, pretty much U.S. capital in the very early uh, days, like mid '90s, when U.S. LPs started investing in, in in China through their Either US VC firms like, for example, Redpoint, I remember they came to China around 1998 99, and uh, Sequoia set up shop in China 2005, and Matrix came to China 2008. But th- those, those guys are kind of late, uh, kind of not that early already. So uh, if you look at the market, initial capital supply is pretty much 100%, if not, yeah, I think 100% or 90, 90 plus percent coming from US. So, US venture capital venture investors were the first group uh, arriving in the market and start funding companies like Alibaba, Tencent, and those huge uh, conglomerates today. And um, so, I think the, uh, the opportunity to really attract those investors is just the because of the magnitude of the market right uh, imagine at the time even china was not that even uh, that developed yet and uh, uh, but you look at the the growth rate you look at the growth of internet penetration you, uh, you look at the uh, gdp per, per capita gdp growth and the country is moving like uh, moving on a fast train so um i think those different factors really attracted investors in the early days and but increasingly, I think um, if you talk to the LPs, right, uh, because in our business, like uh, we have to raise money from limit partners, usually endowment funds and foundations, those are typical investors for our industry. And uh, uh, and because the fund size are uh, fund sizes are usually uh, contained within a, a certain limit. But uh, uh, um of course, there are, there are people out there like Sequoia, China, and uh, and even sometimes increasingly local funds like Qiming Ventures. Qiming just raised a $1 billion fund, and uh, Qiming is a local fund, initially started by an American uh, co-founder and a Chinese-American co-founder uh, r- around 2005, 2006. So those are the early pilots in the market, and uh, what really attract, attracted the, their LPs to come to China... Is just the magnitude of the market. So um, I think, um, uh, and, and also, I think re- what's really differentiate the, uh, or kind of drives this growth of the market, um, if you look at those companies in the market, then those companies are not typical SOE turned companies. Those are purely 100% private businesses that thrived. Look at Tencent, look at Alibaba, they're in a business, they're in an industry that nobody really really knew what's going to happen back in 20 years ago, 15 years ago. So there wasn't so much government intervention at all. So government had no idea at all. Government had no idea what Internet was back then. And so um, I think that's the – uh, so, if you come to China, right? So, because because people, there are a lot of people on the market saying, oh, wow, you guys, uh, China has a lot of so many SOEs and they're doing so many things that uh, you intervene with the private business. But if you're in China, then you will see this totally different. And if you look at traditional business, mining, uh, well, uh, railroad and those uh, public transportation, those things are kind of government owned and run. But if you look at innovation, Side of things, internet technology, computing, autonomous driving, everything is driven by private capital, and private capital is really driving the uh, the, the excitement of the market.
0: Absolutely, well, it's definitely an exciting time, I think, for startups in China, um, and and I think yeah, there's obviously been you know a big uptake um, domestically with you guys. So I think it's fantastic um, to see finally everyone getting behind (laughs) you guys um so um there is often kind of i guess a myth if you will um, in venture capital or or perhaps it's the fairy tale story um that venture capitalists invest in good people and good ideas and to that effect of course you do and it goes without saying but often the reality is that um although they can contribute we also invest in good industries right and i think uh you guys position yourselves really well there that you look at industries that are either untapped or competitive, um, it being enterprise and technology. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about your, you know, CGC's positioning on that um, and what industries you see as the most potential growth in, um, for example, like AI tech. I, I know you guys are heavily in the transport industry there um, with autonomous trucking and whatnot, but yeah, just a, if you could elaborate on that, just a little.
1: Sure. Sure. So, um, we think overall if you look at China opportunities, then China has been seeing a tremendous growth in consumer internet for the past twenty years. And that kind of has reached a plateau. We have like over one billion people already online and uh and there are there are big guys on the market like Tencent Alibaba, both um each of them being valued over 500 billion U.S. dollars, and uh, they're they're also kind of fast fast followers like uh, PDD, which is being valued at over uh, 150 billion U.S. dollars, and uh, those are uh, well, those are kind of not really old companies. Even for for Tencent and Alibaba, those are com- those companies are only 20 years old, so they're not that old. But still, the market on the consumer side of the market innovations. Uh, It's coming to a plateau there. You don't see that many. You don't see the next kind of 100 billion opportunity easily out there. For example, if you move into Africa today, if you move into, well, uh, what do we define as a uh, kind of... Lower technology markets, for example, uh, China moving into Southeastern Asia because of lack of infrastructure, ready infrastructure. So there's a lot to do in Southeastern, uh, Eastern Southeast Asia, and also there's so much to do in Africa. And look at the population, two billion young people there that we don't have that in China anymore. So that's uh, what we call okay. We're moving into a more like a, a technology 2.0 age. Where everybody has to look at the dark side of the moon, right? The bright side of the moon is is the consumer side, right? Because it's it's a the entry barrier is low and uh, it's easier to understand whether you're you're selling and you're you're doing e-commerce or you're doing gaming, you're doing social media. So everything is, um, uh, everything is on on the bright side of the moon. So, uh, and that's what. Ha- that's what happened for, for the past 20 years in China. But, and then also in the early days, for example, we have this saying called uh, copy to China. Right? So in the early days, there's Yahoo in the U.S. Then we have Sina and Sohu. Those are kind of what do we define as Web 1.0 companies. And then there are people like uh, Twitter uh, and Facebook in the U.S. Then we started to have uh, um, uh, weibo from china in for for china so we always have this china counterpart uh, counterpart for for the u.s companies but increasingly especially after 2000 i would say 2018 and uh, while well, china has to innovate and uh, then you will see companies like Bitdance, right they launched a product called, called tiktok which is becoming increasingly popular internationally not just for china and uh, and those guys are are uh, those guys have to innovate and to lead. And then on the other hand, then uh, assuming every every business is already online, you're selling clothes online, you're selling food online. China is probably the largest mobile grocery business and market. And uh, uh, if you look at Meituan, Meituan is way bigger than uh, uh, DoorDash and uh, Postmates combined. So, uh, So China has this characteristic being a huge concentrated market where you can actually deploy a large-scale business. But on the other hand, on the supply side, every supplier has to be digitally capable of doing business online. That kind of caused this wave of uh, um, using enterprise software and finally being digitally enabled, you can no longer use just a pen and pad to record your business. You have to re- you have to use the software. You have to use the system. You have to be able to integrate with your uh, your your whatever platform you're on. You're on Meituan, that okay, you have to use uh, 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 your, your, a system to plug into Meituan, supply the data, and get orders from from Meituan. And then if you're on Elema, which is a popular. Shanghai area, then you have to be able to tap into their platform. So every business, small and big, they they have to be able to tap into those large digital platforms. That's why people have to use software. So we think software is finally happening in China. And in the past... People are kind of challenging, oh, well, China is really hard to pay for software. But today, the software looks differently, right? But today, people uh, people pay for software as either through commissions or through uh, the, the SaaS model, which is hugely popular in China, and especially among the younger generation of entrepreneurs. And uh, that's the current, what we define as tech 2.0 stage for China, right? The consumer age is already on a plateau, and now it's the age for enterprise software innovations now for us at cdc we really like this enterprise software approach we think that's like um if you compare china to the us market then it's like uh, uh, we think like eight uh, 80s mid 80s to early 90s when pc started to penetrate the market so we think a owning a personal computing device is really important to have a software industry for example in the past china was never a pc century country. And there was 30 million PC shipments every year. That's flat. And if you look at mobile phone, China probably shifts around 300 million. So it's 10 times bigger than the PC market. That's why China never really had a software market 10 years ago when there was only PC. And nowadays, especially after 2014, 15, when smartphones become a, a common, a common de- a device for everybody and then the software market started happening. happen. And on the frontier technology side, for example, as you mentioned earlier, uh, AI, artificial intelligence, robotics, and a lot of things are happening at the same speed or even faster speed as internet is penetrating the market. And uh, I think the advantage for China is... Well, Chinese students or Chinese kids are good, good good, with math, right? So people are just really good with numbers and uh, they're good with physics and chemistry and all those kind of really basic stuff. And that kind of laid down the foundation for AI. So if you look at a supply of papers and technologies internationally, then Chinese uh, is a big group contributing AI uh, citations. So... Uh, And also if look at the look at China market as a market, then we don't have that many strict uh, compliance to follow yet. For example, um, yes, we are paying attention to privacy, but privacy was never the top concern for Chinese people because we're living in such a condensed cities and uh, people don't really have that privacy, never really had privacy in the past, right? So uh, I think that kind of created uh, um, a culture difference compared to what's happening in the US and Europe where people are really sensitive to their privacy. In China, I think uh, uh, we don't really have that tradition of owning privacy in the past. So um, we could really, share data and for example people just easily share their phone numbers to get access to wi-fi that's uh, probably the easiest example of how people yeah treat their privacy so it really treat people use part of their data for for access to convenience that's the uh that's the value proposition for for a lot of things in china so uh so then that uh, a lot of things happen in china naturally for example um Surveillance cameras. And uh, we we in China think it's, oh, it's a guarantee of safety. It's a guarantee of uh, kind of personal uh, safety as well, because. Uh, in the past bad things could happen and uh, no one really noticed that and now there are cameras on the street and no, uh, even if you're driving a car then you have to pay attention to the to the traffic lights because the cameras will get will will, will catch you so uh so the, those things really make people or or us feel feel safe uh, instead of be, uh, feel being monitored so i think that's a totally different culture um kind of uh, a culture thing it's really a culture thing uh, so I think that's probably also different. There's difference between Western culture and uh, the the, uh, Eastern, especially uh, Asian culture, China being part of it. And I think Japan is feeling the same and Korea is also similar. And uh, so those things made AI really easy to access and uh, as a market opportunity. So if you look at those large companies, Hikunwei, HK Vision and uh, all those large um, AI startups and the most expensive one being... Sense time, and which was only a, a five-year-old startup company, now being valued at six billion U.S. dollars, all because of this kind of uh, um, easy-to-access approach in China. So, at the CDC, uh, we define next-generation computing technologies, for example, uh, algorithm-based opportunities, for example, like AI. And but also increasingly AI is becoming more uh, democratic, right? You apply AI to a lot of different things. You do AI for fintech. You apply AI for diagnostic healthcare. You, you apply AI for public tr- transportation. And uh, so we look at AI increasingly as a vertical tool to uh, uh, to apply to different sub sub verticals. And and also we're interested in the next-generation communication technologies. For example, 5G is being de- uh, deployed heavily in China, and people are just switching their phones to from 4G to 5G, and uh, they can watch super clear, high-resolution movies on their phone because the data package is super cheap. And uh, so and people are changing their phones from, from the traditional uh, 1K resolution to 4K resolution phones. So entertainment, next-generation entertainment will come. If you look at the market, then... Uh, 2005 or six there was there was companies like YouTube being acquired by Google for 1.6 billion and without wow that's huge but that's the just the start of uh, uh, people using broadband and then and then ten years later once people started def- using mobile broadband services then there are companies like uh, big dance which is being valued at the one uh, 150 billion US dollars right so that's the magnitude of um, high bandwidth applications so opportunities so so it's really important that we leverage this uh, china's magnitude of consumer market multiplied by next generation computing and co- communication technologies and uh, in, in the end we could see really uh, disruptive technologies and innovations
0: fantastic Well, wow. it's really fascinating here you talk about all this um it's yeah I wish we had more time but um it's it's really great stuff. So I particularly love how you describe the bright side of the moon and the dark side of the moon. I think that's a great analogy. So um you know you and I we haven't met, right? Um yeah met via the Collision uh, conference app which this year was all remote. Um, and it was called uh Collision from Home. So um first and foremost, did you tune in from home or are you back at the office? Um, and what were your highlights from the conference? If you did tune in,
1: right. Uh, so we are actually back in the office. Mm-hmm. So uh, and China, I think overall, China is probably ninety percent back in the office already. And right. uh, um, because China was the first, right, first the victim for of this coronavirus, and uh, we even had the our second hit. Uh, a, a few weeks back, and but still, people are getting more comfortable, and because they understand that, well, as long as they take precautions, then uh, people can be safe. Yeah. Uh, but still, we're doing a lot of things online, and we do, we're, we're not just collision from home, but a lot of uh, increasingly a lot of number of conference calls and video uh, video conferencing uh, yes. events are happening online.
0: Right it's almost um they call it soon fatigue perhaps um that kind of leads me into my next question for you um i mean obviously traditionally both angels and vcs kind of you know you love to meet your entrepreneur in in person and considering you um you know i guess locally you can take by the sounds of it meetings in person which is great um for those that you source overseas um or how are you sourcing your startups? So, like, you know, are you having a lot more tech conference? Sorry, um, tech conferences online, uh, virtual webinars. Um, you know, do you think this is all making VC more accessible as well? But first and foremost, how are you sourcing your startups in this? I guess can we coin it yet a post-COVID era? <laughs> I, I know we're kind of sorting it out, but um, yeah, how how would you best um, source your startups now?
1: right uh we actually uh, source most of our companies uh, through referrals okay because we're, because we're only we're only investing three things right so uh, kind of a sector defined investor so we 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 kind of understand or know where we're going so we try to look for the next next entrepreneur through uh, kind of entrepreneur re- uh, referrals, that's the most common way. Yeah. And we're constantly doing that even before the, the pandemic. and But increasingly, um, and also uh, I, I think... Uh, we, we're trying to make us visible, right? For example, doing this podcast, at, right? Or people can just search for us and on LinkedIn or, well, I have a Facebook account and, or if you're China, people use a lot of those WeChat and uh, everybody can add me on WeChat. I don't really have this authorization. So uh, we're trying to make us visible and accessible all time.
0: <laughs> you got to get everyone out of your WeChat. now I'm just joking. <laughs> no, that's yeah. No, but yes.
1: Yeah, totally. And also, of course, online technology conferences uh, are a good way of getting in touch with interesting people, and uh, and also uh, interesting fellow investors. Right? People compare notes, and people uh, change, exchange ideas. And uh, we, we we have our kind of China expertise and experience, and, and and we talk to our Silicon Valley peers, and they share their observation on the market. And there, there's always this dynamic of compare notes, uh, and we really love to meet with. Um, um, interesting people
0: yeah yeah so do you think i mean for some vcs they've reported that it's made their life harder or it's made it easier or slowed up their you know capacity to do business or um rather slowed it down or sped Mm -hmm. it up has it had any kind of effect for you guys in that respect or is it kind of been business as usual
1: we the mentality is business as usual but the reality is it's, it's, it's definitely slowed down a bit, at least. And uh, I think psychologically, uh, especially for the other parts of the world, they're probably still in our phase one, right? <laughs> phase one defining China as February and March, a kind of uh, state of mind. And people are still kind of not really comfortable with what's, what's happening. And, uh, and a lot of things are not clear. So uh, during that period, then things are slowed down significantly. So I think the re- the part, other parts of the world all start are still kind of in a slow mode right now, but for China we're kind of coming back eighty uh, percent um, I think in our in our community venture community, and but still uh, uh, our business is more like a people business we still have to really. F- See people, meet people, and uh, and really, really physically meet meet them. Not just uh, so. Uh, we cannot we cannot offer a term sheet just through a Zoom conference. So uh, we're still trying to meet with people, and uh, even after so many calls and. Uh, but the good thing is uh, people have time, right? <laughs> and uh, mm-hmm. uh, for, for us, then we could finally have more time to uh, to take deeper dives into those companies uh, or those introductory meetings. And we spend more time with founders and trying to better understand their background and their incentive. And, and uh, But finally, before we decided to move in, we still have to move. Uh, we still have to see them offline. And the offline dimension actually offers more um uh, more information still i think that's uh, we cannot take that part offer off the table we still need that offline piece
0: but it's quite extraordinary because some VCs have actually they've done deals purely by zoom like some vcs things in in london and whatnot I, i've been quite astonished but um um no that's good to know so um now, you're based in Beijing, um, but you did, we touched upon it at the beginning of the podcast, but you did spend considerable amounts of time in the US, um, Palo Alto, precisely, um, when you're working for Piper Jaffray. Um, can you tell us where you see the main difference, I guess, in approach um, to VC um, compared, I guess, let's just say Silicon Valley to uh, China, like how... And that, look, I know it's been some time since you, you know, were entrenched there um, in Silicon Valley, working there. But obviously, you work a bit across uh, today still. Um, are there any key differences you see in the markets and trends?
1: Yeah, um, I think that. Well, the e- the easier part is the trends. I, I think the trends are identical. Uh-huh. Uh, for example, um, especially if you look at the product, well, uh, well, a lot of products look identical and. Uh, US is doing a lot of things on, on the frontiers, of, for example, AI, robotics, and, uh, um, and and also on the healthcare side. And China is also boosting sectors for those frontier sub Um The, the difference is uh, Silicon Valley is a small circle, right? There are probably um, maybe a ton. 10, 20 thousand people really kind of crucial people you really get to know them and uh, then you're in we're kind of you're in the circle and uh, you're being pulled into that uh, talent pool where you get exposed to new ideas innovations and 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 uh, deals and China China' is huge um, for example we only have one office we're in Beijing and there are people who are based in Shanghai and there are people who are based in Shenzhen. There are people who are based in Hangzhou. They're, they're also super busy looking at their local deals. And their and their fund size is not smaller. Their fund size could sometimes be bigger. So uh, I think China is a huge market. And we don't really have the Silicon Valley for, for China. If you look at Beijing, then, oh, yeah, that looks like Silicon Valley style. And then if you go to Shenzhen, well, that looks like a bigger Silicon Valley. Because, well, they're, yeah, they're connecting Guangzhou, Shenzhen, Hong Kong a lot of other smaller uh, cities together and so wow, it's huge they call it the greater bay area and if you look at shanghai wow shanghai expanding too shanghai is connected with suzhou and changzhou they're trying to uh, kind of uh, connect with the, the the neighbor neighbor cities together so uh, i think um, it's really hard for us to to get to know everyone mm-hmm. and in a timely fashion so um so we, we uh, so for us to 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 stand out to win we really have to To focus on the things that we know and focus on uh, a very specific investment thesis instead of everything that exciting. Mm -hmm. So I think that's the main difference between the two markets. And also, of course, uh, that's understandable because the U.S. has been doing this or seeing this for decades since um, as early as if you look at Sequoia, then Sequoia started early seventies, right? So it's already like 50 years or 60 years and uh but if you look at china china only started a uh, venture uh, i mean in terms of venture community probably 30 years so that's the difference so we're still like the kind of not uh we're, in a, we're still in the fast mode and china, and us is already really established and matured a very uh very visible and very uh, pattern driven but china still kind of st- still in the process of developing more patterns
0: got it got it no it's it's super exciting time so i i know um you guys have some really uh, really intriguing startups mm-hmm. that you oversee like you know like we touched upon uh, autonomous trucking you've got plus AI you've got um, a robotic um, health health platforms innovation medical you've got land space which has been coined as the next you know Space X um, are there any you know and each is very different and in its own right extraordinary is there without you know choosing a favorite is there any particular one there? Um, that you could elaborate on and tell us a little bit more about some exciting developments or how you came to invest in them. Um, I mean, I'm really personally really interested in the invasive neurosurgery robot system, which is Innovation Medical, but and obviously land space. I mean, they're all intriguing. Uh, but just for time-wise, is there one you could perhaps elaborate on a bit more for us?
1: Sure, I like every every one of them. <laughs> and uh, uh, yeah, I discussed this uh, Sanovation uh, surgical robotic uh, platform. And uh, um, so we became fascinated uh, with by robotics uh, around late 2016, early 2017. And we actually didn't really start with uh, surgical robots. We started with uh, industrial robots. And uh, we uh, look at uh, application in the Silicon Valley. There were a bunch of guys doing that, like uh, Six River. There are people like Vicarious applying AI to robotics. Sounds super exciting. And uh, so we started investing in uh, kind of industrial robotics um, uh, around 2017. Now we have three of those companies uh, in our kind of industrial 4.0 cluster. And then, with that knowledge uh, in robotics, we started to look at okay, uh, what other industries might need robotics as well. And then we started to look at at a higher level. Okay, then uh, the first company came into our our our, uh, kind of map was was a was a big U.S. company as uh, Intuitive Surgical. Right, it's a huge uh, uh, surgical robotics company who has been there. Many years and having raised the funds from people like DARPA and super uh, advanced in terms of development and uh, uh, clinical applications, and uh, public company been, uh, being there. Uh, uh, and with a uh, with a pretty decent uh, market cap, so uh, the in the first question to our mind is okay, can we do this in China? Right, um, usually that that's kind of the common uh, question for every one of us in, in the China market. And uh, whenever we see something, we see, oh, can we do this in China? Uh, if there is a already established pattern, then uh, through the process, uh, we met met quite a few, probably ten, uh, yeah, ten, or even twenty uh, similar companies. Who's trying to do those uh, um, kind of open surgery robotics uh, 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 technology products, and then uh, the conclusion was okay. Uh, if you look at uh, Intuitive Surgical, then it took them uh, well, it took them twenty years to become what they are today, or twenty or thirty years. They're they're not really a new company, and uh, mm-hmm. they've been through so many crucial moments, and where DARPA. Uh, funded their early research and also they applied their technology to the real uh, field applications. One Iraq War happened and uh, uh, the, a lot of uh, kind of military uh, assignments. So they can, they actually have the real uh, real world experience compared to all the experience experiments uh, uh, that we see in China. So the conclusion for us was okay. We probably don't have that in China. We don't really have the. Uh, the real world uh, materials, or more those um, the cases for for those uh, pilot companies to could really operate on people. So that's really challenging. So uh, and then uh, the next step for us was okay, can we find a subsector that uh, there are there are applications that we can really apply for people to on, on human and uh, then then this neurological surgical robotics company came, came to our uh, came to our map and we thought okay this is way easier right it's because it's not uh, a a open surgical uh, uh, application and uh, it's more uh, it's more accurate and uh, it operates on the bones instead of on the uh, on the muscles and the, those the soft tissues and soft tissues and the hard tissues are really diff- different soft tissues are way harder than heart tissues, and bones. So we, we look at bones and then, and, and also we'll look at the uh, uh, the Chinese FDA approval process and we think, okay, this might work. This uh, And also uh, increasingly we did more research and we'll look at uh, a company that Johnson Johnson acquired Uh, It's a a French company called Medtech, and uh, it's it's not a new company, but Johnson Johnson acquired them for I think over five billion U.S. dollars just for one of their products called Rosa R O S A, and Rosa was just started being deployed in China, but because the application, uh, the clinical applications are are kind of really the the scenarios are different. If you compare China and uh, and U.S. and European market, in China Chinese hospitals super busy, so you need a you need you really need a kind of faster machine and uh, kind of more uh, more like the uh, a smarter type of machine to make it work. So we think uh, this innovation company and robotics really uh, kind of fit that criteria, and uh, we ended up investing in them, and they are actually getting another round. Uh, not so long ago after our investments so uh we think we started this um uh neurological surgical or, or robotics investment theme and uh, everybody else started to uh, look our way and follow
0: got it got it fantastic well yeah it's super intriguing so we'll definitely be watching that from afar um and uh, to kind of um touch upon you know there's been and to segue, obviously, I'd love to spend more time talking about it, but we'll definitely follow that journey. Um, to segue, there's been obviously a lot of movement um around the world and specifically in the US, right? With diversity startups, um, you know, there was a there's been a for a while a lot of focus on female led startups. How are you guys positioning yourselves? Do you have any kind of diversity stack, so to speak? Or um, I know that your business partner. Haiyan Wu um, has been listed in Forbes China and the 50 top women in tech, which is amazing. Um, So can you tell me, is that kind of a focus for you guys or are you more kind of, I guess, um, uh, industry specific in how you source your startups?
1: Right. I I was about to say that we're a woman-led firm. <laughs> so, because a lot of VCs usually, right? Usually VCs you see a bunch of guys and just fighting for for deals and uh pound the table and so that's a typical VC firm, but we're we're kind of women leadership firm. So, uh which kind of really made us different. And but also in terms of uh, I think in terms of diversity, uh we were first on the market to um, advocate investing in uh, enterprise applications back in 2014 one at the time there was uh, there was a, this big boom in personal computing right android android phones became became so popular and uh, everyone was investing in uh, personal applications mobile social and those type of things and we were the first on the market saying okay we should look like, at the as we discussed earlier, dark side of the moon, which look at what really what really drove enterprise uh, iterations and we should be investing in software and we should be uh, in investing in uh, technologies. Because uh, uh, China, um, overall, China VCs never invest in technologies for the past 20 years. People are usually comfortable investing in uh, applications. And even when we... Uh, when uh, when I was with my first VC firm, we talked to our LPs. We're saying, "Oh, we're we're not touching technologies. We're only backing business model innovations because that's what the market was uh, 15 years ago." And but now, if you look at what China has become in terms of technology uh, sophistication, in terms of penetration, um, and even even for for a lot of U.S. startup companies, their first batch of pilots might happen in China. And uh, we have a software company, we have a database company called PinCap, and they have a New York-based database company called uh, um, uh, Cockroach Database. And their first pilot customer is Baidu in China. But those guys are purely hundred percent American teams back in New York, and uh, so that's 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 kind of the opportunity for China, even for larger companies. For for uh, for example, Baidu, a public company, uh, not that big, but it's still kind of decent uh, public, fifty billion or seventy billion market cap, and uh, they're still hungry for technology, and uh, but for for. Uh, for U.S. customers, and uh, there there's so many large U.S. customers out there, but they, it usually takes longer for them to uh, uh to to approval process or to uh to start a POC uh, kind of uh, a project. So we think uh, that kind of differentiated us. We're f- we we're first on the market to claim the enterprise uh, uh flag.
0: Love it, love it, super important. Well, that's a big differentiator, obviously, in the market. So that's fabulous. Um. You know, it's often said um, that you learn more from your failures um, than your successes. <laughs> um, can you that- share perhaps an example of both a lesson you learned from perhaps a failure uh, you don't mind sharing with us or um, you learn from perhaps a great success as well?
1: Sure. Uh, I... I think, um, uh, well, we, we fail all the time <laughs> uh, BC. I, I think it's pretty common for us to uh, to, to fail, and uh, one one of my most uh, memorable failure is uh, on the telehealth in the telehealth space. Right. And because there, if you remember back in 2010 or 2012, there was this big wave of mobile health mm-hmm. and people just uh, order uh, doctor uh, interviews and all the kind of prescriptions on, on the Internet. And people can speak to a doctor immediately. Mm-hmm. And um, at the time, China was also experienced this uh, this trend. And we started to see so many applications in space, and uh, we ended up investing in one of them. I will not quote the name of the company, but uh, um, but that company eventually failed. And the lesson being, and, uh, okay, if you look at some, uh, if you look at uh, healthcare, if you look at uh, financial services, if you look at education, those three sectors in China are still um, partially market driven because they are a public resource. Right. Uh, for example, uh, uh, you, you have to let the poor people to be able to see a doctor instead of uh, uh, put, put the doctor interview uh, on, on an auction. Right. So it's not a hundred percent price driven thing. So that make the market is not 100 percent market uh, effective. So you have to consider um, how to how to balance the uh, public good with the uh, monetization approach approach. Uh, within a startup so that's one of the lessons i i learned and uh, increasingly that lesson expanded to financial services slash fintech because we pioneered fintech back in really early on we started the first p2p company in china and now p2p is coming Uh, in the past uh, 15 years p2p kind of started uh, with a humble start and then expanded in a huge way and p2p was a big part of the kind of chinese financial innovation in the, in the last decade. And now P2P is coming back to small again. So because financial services is also a, a, an industry where if you want to play a role in China, you have to uh, uh, kind of look for government compliance guidance and uh, make sure you have the right license. So for financial services, we tend to think if you want to do something in China, then it's usually a license first sector. Mm-hmm. And uh, same thing for education, right? So uh, education is also a public resource and teachers and those low intuition uh, fees and for those public schools. And so you cannot really monetize traffic to, uh, uh, for a private startup. So a lot of things happened uh, during the past decade just proving, okay, for some sectors where there is huge uh, uh, consideration on public good, then you, can, you have to be really careful in designing your business model.
0: Absolutely. No, it's key. Um, I I guess you guys, you know, obviously you're investing in a lot of, I guess, uh, first to market, uh, you know, startups that are really kind of, you know, in the innovation sector. And I guess you classify them as high risk. Um, That said, it is important, obviously, if not crucial that you have a true entrepreneur kind of at the helm of these types of businesses um is there someone this is our final question so take your time to think about it so it's fine um but is there someone that you know really embodies entrepreneurship to you and it could be you know a founder you guys have invested in it could be um, a colleague it could be someone in your family um (laughs) you know that really embodies that for you um for what entrepreneurship really means
1: yeah um well, that's, that's actually an easy question for me. So um, when I joined CDC, uh, because, uh, well, Haiyan was a founding partner of CDC. And also there was a founder uh, of CDC. And I think both the founder of CDC and Haiyan actually uh, kind of perfectly demonstrated what entrepreneur is. And um, so if you look at those guys, two guys, they started working together since 2004 mm-hmm. and uh, ever since. And, uh, um, and at the time of 2004, Haiyan was still young and there were so many opportunities f- for her and she could just um, join a way bigger firm and uh, get promoted and uh, do a lot of, stuff still. But uh, those two people stayed together to uh, to create this firm. And so, for example, if you look at the VCs and a lot of VCs, for example, you look at established platforms, right? You look at a Sequoia, you look at Kleiner Perkins, you look at Matrix, and those are established established VC firms. Um, but during their early days, everyone was like entrepreneur. Right. If you look at uh, Don Valentine, you look at uh, the founders of Matrix and uh, John Doerr from, from Kleiner. Those guys were entrepreneurs and they they raised the fund and they invested in those highly risky uh, businesses that eventually succeeded. And they they're rewarded by the process. So I think eventually VC is also a an entrepreneurial uh, kind of not just a job, but a m- more, more like an entrepreneurial career, just we're probably facing a different type of risk combination than the entrepreneurs themselves. So uh, the founder of C D C name is um, Tang Ning. Uh, in Ch- English, it usually is spelled as N-I-N-G and last name being T-A-N-G. So both him and Haiyan actually uh, made a perfect example of how to become an entrepreneur in the venture capital business to me. That was really inspiring then because at the time I, I was looking at my friends uh, working at the larger venture venture firms. And uh, and I, I think, oh, OK, that's kind of that's cool. Right. You, you, well, you work with a, a large uh, established brand. But what if there is opportunity to create a venture firm uh, by ourselves? Right. So us being entrepreneurs as well and raising money. Con- uh, convincing uh, convincing investors to invest in our funds and uh, eventually returning really good capital to uh, our investors and also uh, make our portfolio companies successful. So that's really even more fulfilling than joining an established platform. So I think that's a, that's a good example of uh, entrepreneurship to me.
0: Absolutely. And look, uh, established in 2006, I'd say, it was very um courageous back then yeah. and new to the market so i yeah i applaud you guys you definitely at the right time, if not one of the early adopters of it. So it's great to see. Um, Look, it has been such a pleasure speaking to you, Wayne. Um, Your insight is incredible. And I'm sure everyone listening to this has got some terrific insights um, that they can um, learn from. And look, if people want to get in touch with you, um, you obviously mentioned WeChat. Is LinkedIn a good source for you as well? absolutely.
1: I'm on LinkedIn too.
0: Fantastic. Well, look, thank you for your time, and folks, if you are, you know, a Chinese-based startup, whether you're in China or Silicon Valley, as Wayne mentioned, or or, or Europe, um, do get in touch with them, reach out, and I do hope you find this informative. I certainly have, and I thank you again, Wayne, for your time.
1: Thank you, January. It's a pleasure.
0: Thank, thank you.